I've got to say, I mean, you made it. Easter 2021. I mean, yeah. If you, yay, all right. Last year, there was nobody in the room. This year, we're 25%, but you made it. I don't know if maybe on the way down, you pick up some Starbucks or a cookie or whatever, played a phone game on the way here, but you're, you're there. You're there. Uh, a couple things as we begin. In the middle of the message, we are going to put up a slide. The slide's going to have a question on it. If you are here and you have a journey guide uh, on page 92 and 93 in that, you can write down that question, maybe talk about it later when you're done, you go out to eat or something like that. Uh, if you're watching the live stream, you can actually pause the live stream right there and answer the question. It's kind of funny. I was talking to uh, Brandon McCool uh, the other night, and he said, you know, we do the live stream and you say, hey, you can pause the live stream right here and take care of your kids. He goes, the kids aren't like, oh, hey, it's 15 minutes in. They can pause. Now I'll go crazy. He goes, you pause it whenever your kids just go crazy. He goes, so it's kind of funny you say I can pause it here when that's not where I typically pause it. And I'm like, well, that's great and whatever. But you can pause it and you can answer the question right there if you would like. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. If you click on more and then events in Uversion, uh, we'll come up by GPS if you're here. If not, type in the zip code 93455. And what will come up in there is the verses and the announcements and a link to this journey guide. Now, uh, all the notes that we kind of have are all in the journey guides, and if you are here and you don't have one, you can grab one in the back of the room, or if you're watching online, you can actually download one of those from the app right there, because again, we're doing these journey guides to bring us all back together after a year of being separated, praying about the same things every day, reading the same devotions every day, thinking about the same things every day. It's a way to help us walk in rhythm as a church body again. So my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. If you're so inclined, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Psalm chapter 46 verses 9 and 10. And it says, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for Easter for coming to a place where we have a day where we remember what the gospel brings about. It brings about resurrection, that we get to worship you, Jesus, for rising from the grave and that you give new life to us. And I ask that this morning we would see you for who you are, and that in turn would change us to be the people that you call us to be. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. Uh, If you haven't been with us uh, going through this Job journey, I hope this morning makes sense. I think it will make sense, but if you've been through each step of it, it's going to make a lot more sense to you. Uh, Job is this Old Testament book. It's spelled J-O-B, like work, like job, but it's pronounced Job, and it's about suffering and not knowing why. It's about having a lot of questions and never getting those answers. Job looks a lot like our lives, and I know you're thinking, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun for an Easter message. It's okay. We're going to get somewhere with this about resurrection and joy. I'm a professional. Uh, I'll get you there. Because by the end of the book, Job gets this beautiful place of resurrection. All he has gone through, he comes to this place where he realizes he just needs to be silent and start to listen who God is because he's been yammering so much throughout the book. He just needs to be quiet and listen to God. Now, I'm not saying that you ramble or that you yammer a lot or blab a lot, but if the shoe fits... Just wear that thing and, you know, be silent for who God is. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 23. 
Now, what you see in the book of Job each week as we walk through these things, I kind of give you the big idea of where each week is going. I don't have like three points I'm pulling out. And if you want to write down the big ideas of where we're going today, it's going to be we need to be a people who understand who God is, that God is generous and loving and good, and that God has placed certain things into our lives, like the desires that he has given us. And all those things are meant to draw us to to him in natural ways, that we're not trying to do all these things. We're actually beginning just to trust him. And then we'll take us to a place where we ask the question of, do we actually like God for who he is? Now, I'll give you some background. Job starts off where he simply loses everything, his health, his wealth, his children. And in the book, there's a character that's called the accuser. When you translate that into English, that is the word Satan. And Satan is standing before God, waiting for Job to fail so he can lash out at Job and God. Now, Job doesn't lash out at God. But what happens is Job's wife does. She looks at Job in the midst of all of this, and she says, Job, you should just curse God and die. It's like I said, she would not be a speaker on the motivational circuit. She should not volunteer for the crisis hotline or anything like that. Uh, After she is done, Job has three friends that show up. And these friends do one thing that is brilliant and then one thing that is just just horrible. But the brilliant part is when they come and they see Job in his misery and they look at him and Job has torn his clothes and shaved his head and put ash on his head. It actually uses this word called nud or nude where it's like someone gets in a car accident. They're sitting on the curb and they're just shaking from the shock. That is what it says Job is doing from all the things he has lost. And so his friends show up and they see this and they tear their clothes and they put ash on their head and they get down next to Job and they hug him and they do that. They just shake and rock with him for seven days and seven nights. It's a beautiful display of love and affection. And actual later Jewish life took this up. They do this thing called sitting Shiva or sitting sevens where friends will come along over the course of a week after someone has a loss and they will mourn and weep with them. That's the brilliant part. The not so brilliant part is when they actually started to speak because the words that they said were terrible. Their words actually did more to harm Job's character than almost everything that he lost. His friends will start speaking in platitudes that don't touch Job at all. They accuse him of being wicked, and that's why all this punishment is happening to him. They say, if you just figure out what you did wrong, you repent of that, God's going to give you all you had and even more. It's all terrible theology. But as they start to speak, you see Job subtly start to change. He starts to see things differently. He starts to become very self-focused about his life. I don't know if this ever happened to you. You get around some of your crazy friends and you say and maybe do things you never would have before. Just, oh, maybe it's just me. I don't know. Okay. But that's what they're like. They're saying these things. And eventually Job gets to the point where he says, I want to stand before God. I want God to declare me to be innocent because his focus is on himself. Job 23 verses 3 through 5. Job says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. That is how now Job is looking at his relationship with God. And it's kind of scary because God actually does show up. And that's when Job's like, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have said anything there. And the interesting thing when God shows up is he doesn't even really answer any of Job's questions. And a big question for us in that is why doesn't God answer Job's questions? And last week got to the point where I showed you that God doesn't answer Job's questions because that's not what Job needed. It's like not what we need. Many times we think if God would just come here and answer all my questions, well, then I'd believe and I'd be okay. But that's not true. God answers our questions. We would just have 
more questions. It's like a little kid. You give them an answer and like, well, why? Well, da da da. Well, why? Well, da da da. Well, why? And you're like, oh, that's us. We're like little kids in front of God. Well, well, why? What God knows that Job needs is to see who God truly is in his person. And that is going to change Job because in the end, that's what is also will change us. Now at Element, this is one of the reasons why every week you guys show up, you probably like hear me ringing the same gong every week, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's why we speak about the gospel. The gospel is how we understand who God is in his character, God's rescue of us. Like God rescued Job, God rescues us. God comes as a mediator in Jesus and shows us, yes, the bad news of our sin, how we've hurt others, how we've rebelled against God, how we've broken relationship with him. And yet at the cross, Jesus mediates. He goes between. He makes peace between us and God by taking our sin upon himself and giving us his righteousness. He becomes our savior. This is what he does. And in our lives, we're supposed to focus on what he did, not necessarily all the evil that we've done and who we are. That, that just makes us a lot like Job in the middle of his life. We've got to get to a point where we see God for who he is. That mediating and saving is meant to change us, to be a people that we're different in how we interact, not just with God, but with everybody around us, where we become God's ambassadors to the world. We become his hands and feet. We become representatives of his grace. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes an appeal through us, all of us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In order to be those ambassadors, we must know who God is and be in relationship with him. Now, what God does for Job is shows Job who God himself is through all the things Job went through. And you see at the end of the book, Job becomes a priest for his friends. He becomes this ambassador to his friends. In the New Testament, the people who believe in Jesus are called to be a kingdom of priests to the world, just the same way. Now, how God gets Job to see who he himself is, is God asks Job a bunch of questions that Job cannot answer. But all the questions are about Job or God's goodness in the least strategic places. God's going to talk about ostriches and mountain goats and sea creatures and this thing called the behemoth, or as Sarah McCall says, the, the behemoth. And, and really, if you like sci-fi, this would be more like translating the super beast, the super beast. It's like Godzilla then versus King Kong and Mecha Godzilla, and it's, it's the super beast. You're told the origins of the super beast. They are with God, and his appetite is hearty and insatiable, and his strength and virility are immense. And yet the super beast has no strategic value to mankind in the world. You know, why would God make it if we can't tame it? Why would God make the super beast if we can't ride it or make it plow our fields? Why does God make an ostrich or a mountain goat or a super beast? Because God loves and cares for and delights and finds joy and beauty in the least strategic creatures in the world. What God is showing Job is, Job, I'm worth it, loving me and walking with me through all the things in your life. I am the God who is worth getting close to, trusting in me. God reveals himself this way to Job because Job had focused all upon himself. And God says, you need to focus upon me. You must understand my character. And now, after the cross and resurrection, we understand God's character so much better in the resurrection. God shows himself to Job to be graciously good and uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving. God gives for no reason at all, simply because it is who he is. God does not love us because of our performance. God does not love us for what he can get out of us. God loves us because he himself is good. Now open your Bibles to Job chapter 40. 
In the end of all this, you see this resurrection take place in Job's life, in his view not just of God, but of how he interacts with the entire world around him. Job will start to honor things in his culture that other people would see no strategic value in at all. Everything changes when Job understands who God is. How does this happen? Well, Job finally gets silent before God when he gets a big picture of God. Job 40, 40 verses 4 and 5, Job says, Behold, I am of small accounts. Like, God, you're so big. I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer twice, but I proceed no further. This is the way of Job saying, I need to be quiet. I need to be still and realize that you are God. It is a moment in Job's life to realize that everything his friends have been telling him to do, you got to try harder, Job, you got to try. It's not about trying harder. It's about trusting God and listening to him and seeing who he is, because that is what will change our lives in the end. Now, in Easter, because this is Easter, I'm going to try and take all these things we've talked about and then bring them down to us as a people to make it practical. Uh, we did this series here at Element nine, ten years ago. I took a bunch of stuff out of a book called The Me I Want to Be. And there's a section where the author actually emphasizes not trying harder, but listening and trusting God for who he is and letting that be the thing that starts to change us because that's what changed Job, God's revelation of himself. Now, trying harder in our lives can work in some things. If you need to clean the house, sometimes you just got to get up and you got to clean the house. If you're working out and you got to row that extra, I don't know, whatever it is, or run that extra mile or do whatever, trying harder will sometimes allow you to do that. Maybe you've got relatives, you got to call on holidays like Easter. Sometimes you just got to try harder to pick up that phone and call those people. But for us to be the people that God calls us to be, We need some greater power than just us trying harder. We need what the gospel actually brings through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We get God's spirit living in us, empowering us to live certain ways. Like imagine someone comes up to you and they say, try harder to relax. You're having a hard time going to sleep. Well, just try harder to go to sleep. How does that work? Or try harder not to worry. Or try harder to not be anxious. Try harder to be more joyful. There are limits to what trying harder can actually accomplish. Now, as a general rule, the harder we work to try and control things, the more we lose control of those things. This is what Job finds out. The harder you try to fix something, the more your muscles start to tense up. The harder you try to impress someone, whether it's on a date or a job interview or making a sale, the more awkward it just becomes. Uh, Look at some of the Google reviews of Element when I've tried to say hi to people. It just gets weird sometimes in the middle of it and they write reviews. I have no idea why. But anyway, uh, in the gospel accounts, the, the people that got in the most trouble with Jesus and God were the ones who were trying so hard because they were focusing on how hard they were trying and they looked around at everybody else who wasn't trying and said, why aren't they trying like me? They must not be godly like me. What's wrong with all of those people? They stopped loving others and God himself and started focusing upon themselves like Job ended up in the middle of his life. I went through this verse a couple times during Job, Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And we talk about how this word restoration is essential to what the word repentance means. But in this where it says these quiet waters, these are the words manuha meim. And it means peace and stillness and harmony. Some rabbinic commentators actually believe that on the seventh day, God created rest because it's a thing you must enter into. 
in this God revives our souls and he takes us to places that are serene and harmonious in our lives. The problem with trying harder, which was what Job's friends told Job to do, is that you get fixated on how hard you are trying and how hard nobody else is trying. You start to grow judgmental. And you contrast that with how God comes into our lives and he changes us to see who we're supposed to be in light of who he is. And in Psalm 23, David compares his soul, his spirit, from going shaky, all stressed out, to being calm because he focuses on his shepherd and not his circumstance. We Trusting God means that we trust his goodness more than we trust our own efforts. It's allowing God to be the one who restores our souls. And when we start to walk in the grace that God gives, many times we start to twist that just a little bit. And this is why we are reminded every single day that we're supposed to be filled with God's Spirit. Not that God's Spirit ever leaves us or anything like that. This is a daily refocusing on who God is in His person. Uh, In the book that I was reading, the author talks about how you let your natural desires in your life that God has placed there lead you to places where you love and serve him. The author actually says this, let your desires lead you where God is leading you. Because when you understand how God is generous and good and loving and he's placed certain desires within us, that helps us to be a people who live those out in ways that honor who God is. So we ask God, God, what are you leading me towards? What desires that I get to run towards that you have placed in my life? Because when you follow these desires that God has given you, it's not about trying harder, it's about trusting and loving God. Things become so much different. In Genesis 28 and 29, there's this guy named Jacob. He falls in love with this girl named Rachel. He's poor, doesn't have any money, and so he decides he's going to work seven years of essential slave labor to pay for the bride price for Rachel. But you read in Genesis 29 verse 20, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now, it sounds like a Hallmark card, right? It sounds so nice. Who would regard seven years of work as if it was only a couple of days? Well, it's the one who works for love. That's, that's who does that because it isn't really work. It's joy. And so right here, if you have your journey guides, page 92 and 93, this is the question I want you to write down. If you're watching on the live stream, here's my question. What desires has God given you? What desires has God, has God placed in your life? What makes you come alive? What makes time pass like it's not even there where you're not, maybe you're even working, doing something, but it's not even like you're trying. It's just joy. What desires has God placed in your life? Because those are meant to draw you to him. Now, this is where Job's friends really got it wrong. They thought all the effort in their lives led to God's favor and God giving them exactly what they wanted. But we are to be a people who trust God no matter what comes our way. Uh, imagine it like this. You have two really athletic eight, nine-year-old kids. They, they both love swimming. And one of them, you know, they're both really good at it. And one of them decides, I, I want to go to the Olympics. And he starts just thinking about being on the podium. And he listens to the national anthem. And he's just like all these things. And he's got this great desire. The other kid's mom sees this and be like, yeah, you're going to go to the Olympics. And he, she gets him like trainers and all, coaches and all this stuff. And by the time, imagine they both make it to the Olympics. What kid is, is happy about being there? The one who does it for his dream. What kid may be irritated at his parents and his coaches all the way there? Well, the kid who gets forced to do it. The kid who's trying harder. We need to be the kids who are working for the dream that God has placed in our lives. This is why when Jesus describes life with God, he talks about it and says, it's like a man who found a buried treasure. An important word here, joyfully sold everything he owned because of the value of it. Joyfully. When people hear Jesus' call, it's meant to awaken this desire within us. That's a work of God's spirit. But we are drawn to his peace and his courage and his wisdom. We're enamored with his life, death, and resurrection. And sooner or later, we can do nothing but start to live that out in our 
our lives because God is simply so amazing. But that only comes out of understanding who he is. It is why we call it the good news, not the good works. It's called the good news. This is the idea that we don't just conjure up all these desires on command. And I want to help you to understand this a bit. Maybe to get to a place where Job was without having to go through all the stuff that he went through. Not that you won't go through the stuff he went through. I'm just saying maybe you won't have to. Uh, John Ortberg once said uh, that we are all born with what we, he calls a lycometer. And I like that because everything we go through in our life, it rates upon our lycometer. Uh, what he said rates really high in my lycometer. I, I kind of like that. And what he means is that like all, all the way from little babies, babies' taste receptors are pretty well formed. And what they like, they're like, put that in my mouth. I want more of that in my mouth. If they don't like it, they go... And they, and they spit it back out. But as we get older and grow, everything starts to rate in our lives on that lycometer. Every conversation you hear, uh, every bite you eat, every relationship you're a part of, everything relates positively and negatively on that scale. And people are going to rate as well. And while that's going on, other people are rating you on their lycometer scale. It's always going on. So here's the question. Do you like God? Where does God rate? Do you like him? And I ask that because if you don't really like God, you're not really going to spend a lot of time with him. You're not going to really pray or read your Bible or want to be in communion with him. And what you see happen in Job's life is after everything that took place, when he understood who God is, he began to live out these great desires of loving those around him. He loved God more than ever by the end of the book. And it's very important to be honest about where we are with that question of liking God because you can't fake him out. He knows you better than you know you. God wants us to love and follow him because we love him. But that love comes out of understanding who he truly is in his person. It comes out of understanding him better. Feeling guilty that you don't love God or like God as much as you should, that doesn't help at all. This is why in Psalm 34, verse 8, we are told, taste and see that the Lord is good. That is an experiential type of thing. Hear, see, taste, it's an invitation because God is confident when we really understand who he is, when we really begin to walk in his ways, we'll continue to want to walk in his ways. Again, most people hear about this thing called the gospel, but a lot of people never live in the gospel of what it actually brings. I mean, part of the results of the gospel is understanding the desires that God gave us are meant to lead us to him. And God wants us to desire him most of all. And so we need to look and understand that there's a pattern to the things that God has placed in our lives, in our desires, in our activities and sensations and people and thoughts that wake up our souls. Those are meant to be God's gifts to us. And don't get me wrong, when desires are bad and they go all wonky, they can really go wonky and bad. But the desires are part of who God made us to be, showing us who he is in his person. Now, there are a lot of people today who can't see God except through the eyes of religion. And they will say things like, well, if you want to be spiritual, you want to avoid sin, well, then you need to get rid of every desire in your life altogether. If you don't want sex or money or food or success, then you're going to be really, really spiritual. I mean, think about this kid a couple weeks ago who goes into those massage parlors and kills all those women because he's got this desire, but he focuses on temptation and outward. And he does all these things trying to get rid of the temptation because he thinks that's going to take care of the problem in his life. And it doesn't because he's still got to live with him. These desires are there. When they're not found in Christ, they're going to go all wonky. And if you could get rid of all desires, well, maybe you wouldn't sin, but you wouldn't be human either. One commentator says it like this. A slab of cement doesn't have to worry about weeds, but it will also never be a garden, which is totally true. 
Uncorrupted by sin, desire is amazing because it's part of God's design. The psalmist says about God, Psalm 145, verse 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God is a desire-creating, desire-fulfilling God. You look at Adam all the way back in the garden. How did Adam know he's supposed to become one flesh with Eve? You think God showed up and said, okay, Adam, here's your to-do list today. Name the animals, take out the trash, become one flesh with Eve. Don't forget that one, that's important. No, Adam looked at Eve and he had a desire, (laughs) a desire, and it came from God. And I personally believe that nothing lures us further away from God than not understanding who he is. And that is why we took all those weeks to get to the place where God reveals himself in the book of Job. Many times we make up a God in our own mind and we say, that's who God must be. That's what Job's friends did. And when we start to do that, God either looks like someone who looks a lot like us, condones every dumb thing that we want to do with the desires he gave us, and then when everything comes burning down, we say, oh, well, God failed, or God must not exist, when all we were doing is worshiping ourselves in the first place. And on the other side, some people think that God looks like a tyrant and just says no to every desire he ever gave us, and they walk away claiming God isn't good or he doesn't exist. God's desire is that we would know him, and part of that is every time we experience an authentic desire, a God-implanted desire within us, we come to understand more deeply who he is, how good he is, how generous he is, how loving he is, just like Job did. Because as a result of that, we find ourselves loving this great God more and more and more. Now, practically in our lives, it is shown that there are four types of desires that we have. You might think they don't look spiritual, but I think they are because they all have a God-centered foundation. I'm going to give you those four if you want to write them down. The first one is called material desires. Material desires. I know some people think material is all evil, but I submit to you. If you were to purge all sin out of the world, we would still desire material things because God made stuff. God made material things. All stuff is ultimately part of God's creation, and therefore it is good. Again, it's what we do with the good creation that God has actually made that matters. You take money, for example. You know, money can be a great thing. You go back to, you know, Genesis and and the early scriptures, and money was like cattle and grains, and now we use paper because we're apparently so much smarter, I guess. And so, you know, money can be good when you use it correctly. But if that desire chokes out your generosity or it causes you to live in debt, or creates chronic dissatisfaction, then it is time to say no. I believe God gives us creative ways to use our desires. Uh, One of our elders, Mike Harmon, loves old muscle cars, loves fast cars. Okay, And I think that's like a God-implanted desire. Maybe that's you. Maybe God placed a desire in you for really fast cars so that you could be a policeman and you could drive really, really fast and it'd be totally legal. Or... Maybe you're the guy who drives really fast so policemen have something to do. I don't know. Either way, I'm saying your desires can be good when they're properly focused. Uh, The second one is what's called achievement desires, where we want to achieve, we want to do something. And this can be great when it's lived out like the Apostle Paul, who was constantly moving and teaching and building and motivating. Paul described his life with metaphors like 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. God didn't come and take away Paul's desires to achieve. He harnessed them. And Paul goes out and he serves other people. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. It is a good thing to want to achieve. But if your achievement leads you to places where you're in workaholism or worshiping status or neglecting your family or neglecting prayer or using people, then that work then needs redirection. But when it is done right, we work in the world in such a way that we work with Christ in everything that we do, and it's beautiful.
Uh, the next one is called relational desires. Relational desires are what you feel when you gather with other people, where you get together and talk and laugh and new friendship form. That all comes from God. Uh, places like a church or restaurants when they're open or your living room, they can all be places of this fellowship where God's spirit comes and moves and draws people together. It can be amazing. And then there are physical desires. What? Yes, physical desires. Your, made, your body was made by God. And you have certain appetites that he gave you, things to eat, drink, touch, see, physical desires. If you look through the Old Testament scriptures, there are all these things where God calls his people to feast and eat and drink and celebrate and sing and dance and shout and make music. These are all things that we do with our bodies. And those appetites and desires and delights can become a way to remember how good God is when they are found in him. And they lead us to be a more joy-filled people. Why does God give us some desires that don't seem strategic? at all because God's good and he is loving they can show us who God is Job's friends say Job get rid of all your desires get rid of just just be a robot and what God does is he takes Job and he helps Job to see that all the desires that he had were that were already moving within him and he loved them and he was able to connect those with the giver who gave him those things and he started to love God even more and that's the same thing that we get to do we connect the gift which we already love with the giver and it causes us to love and want to serve him even more it is a good thing to eat food that you love to eat especially if you've given it up for lent and it's like you get a cookie I don't know, cookies or something like that. It's a good thing to wear clothes you love to wear or listen to music that makes you feel glad, even if it's country, I, you know, whatever. You know, it's, it's great. It's great. When we open ourselves to who God truly is, even in the midst of suffering like Job underwent, everything will start to flow in the right direction. When we understand who God is, I think we'll begin to love God more and more, not because we should, not because it's commanded, not because we're trying harder, but because we simply get to know him and we just can't help it when we see God for who he is. What else could we actually do? And this is why God spends all this time not answering Job's questions, not answering every little thing that he has, but in the end, showing Job who he is. And Job got to taste and see that the Lord is good. What changes us is understanding God's character. And for us, this ultimately leads to Easter and then resurrection. Because at the cross and resurrection, we get to understand in such a deep way who God himself is. Why would God save us when we had no strategic value to him? Because he loves us. Because that's who he is. When we understand that Jesus dies and resurrects for us, that he takes our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness, he gives us restored relationships, he takes our death and he gives us his life because of his great love for us. That's why God allows Job to go through all the things Job did because of his great love for Job. God's grace brings Job to a place of understanding. And that same thing can happen for every single one of us when it's properly focused. And I think if we want to be, have a perfect life, I initially called this book of Job the perfect life, but we have that, it's only going to come from knowing God fully. That's where it comes from. And that's what the book of Job is all about. It's not about trying harder. Not that we never try. Sometimes we do try, you know, but we instead trust Jesus for who he is. We taste and see that the Lord is good. And part of the way that we want to do that for you is after this Lent journey, that's why we waited till Easter to pick up that thing that you have set down. Because that's a way to begin to understand, to taste and see that the Lord is good. We've given up this thing for six weeks now. 
And then when you pick it up again, not that you want to binge on it. Oh, God is so good. Oh, I'm going to eat all the cookies. You know, but it's like every little bite, every little taste is this reminder of the graciousness of God. I was talking to some people. It's got cut out of the talking element. Uh, but I was talking to one of the talking elements, and I said, I mean, God could have made food like dog kibble, like nutrient nuggets that grow on trees, and that was food. He didn't have to make it taste as good as he did, but he does because he loves us. And we learned how to make cookies out of it. And it's phenomenal. It all comes down to understanding the gracious goodness of God. But again, as I said, that all goes back to the place of the cross and the resurrection. That God came to rescue us when we had no right to be rescued. God rescues us because he is simply good. And this is one of the reasons every week at Element we take you to the place of communion to remember what Christ did for us. And that's why you take a cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. And we dip it or drink the wine or the grape juice and it reminds us of how good God is that he would come himself to rescue and save us because we can never do it ourselves. And then in that understanding, we start to live our lives out as the result of the gospel. We get to taste and see in all these moments that God is good. And our desire should lead us to him. Now the band's gonna come up. They're gonna do a couple songs as they do. If you need prayer, if you maybe are in a place today where you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, uh, we would love to be able to pray with you. If you're watching the live stream, you can send an email to prayer.element.org or connector.element.org, and we will uh, go ahead and get a hold of you and pray with you if you need that. Uh, we want to make sure that we are people who are there for you in these moments because we want to taste and see how good God actually is in our lives. Oh, we want to be... <laughs> it's back there. <laughs> we we want to be those who... Um, uh, come alongside one another and, and pray with one another and be those who help one another see how good God actually is in our lives. So if you need prayer, please let us know. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, another great thing is that there are offering boxes next to every door. I like saying that when there's people in the room. Uh, I give online, uh, but it's great to be able to be reminded of this because God has been so generous and so good with us, and so we simply give. Element is not a church that passes a plate. We always want giving to be a response to what God has done in our lives, and so that's why you have that opportunity every single week. Uh, and I would encourage you, there's still one more week uh, in those Job journey guides to walk through the Easter week as you pick the thing up and you start to walk back through those, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Take all the days that we go through the rest of this week and walk through the journey to get to the end of it because it is not done. It is not done. We actually have seven more days. And so walk through that and answer the questions and talk to one another. Maybe, maybe if you're honest enough, talk to people about your like-a-meter and what things you like and don't like. And maybe if you really like God and how high that actually rates. And talk about the desires that God has placed in your life because he is just generous and loving and good. And how he leads us to these places to know and understand him better every single day. Let's be those people who live out our understanding of who God is and what we do. And so we are truly God's priests of the world, his ambassadors, his hands and his feet, so the world knows that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, and he loves us so much that we will never be able to fully comprehend it. But we can be those who simply begin to love him back. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would take us as a people and we would come to a place of greater understanding of who you are. 
And that understanding of who you are would change who we are. That in all the places that we have fixed our eyes upon ourselves, that we would get our eyes off of ourselves. Father, it's so easy many times for us to become myopic and only see our own lives. And yet when you step in, you pull our eyes from ourselves and onto you because you are holy and good and righteous. And as we read throughout the book of Job, we see this creation that you have made and we stand in awe of your majesty and creativity and your goodness. And then you show that to us so we would have a better idea of who you are. And I ask that we would have no better idea of who you are than our understanding of the gospel. Your death for us, your resurrection to bring us new life, bringing us back into your family again. Teach us to live out our lives in ways that fully honor who you are. Not because we're just trying to love you, but because we truly do love you. And we ask all this in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.